0: First Corinthians 1:18. I'm going to focus in on that verse. "For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God." Paul has a lot of things he could say to the Corinthians right here at the beginning of his letter, right out of the gate. He could could talk about incest, but he waits until chapter 5. He could talk about sexual immorality, but he waits until chapter 6. He could talk about sex and marriage and celibacy and divorce and so on and and all the the really down-to-earth, ground-level issues that they're dealing with But he waits until chapter 7. He could talk about eating food offered to idols, which is a pretty big deal, and all of the issues that are surrounding that, but he waits until chapters 8 through 10. And he could address the use and the abuse of spiritual gifts, but he waits until chapters 12 through 14, and finally he could confront those who were denying the physical resurrection of Jesus. But he waits all the way to the very end of chapter 16. There's a lot that Paul could say to this broken and sinful church. However, the biggest threat to them is not their sin, but it is their abandonment of the word of the cross. That is their danger. That beautiful message of God's redeeming and reclaiming and reconciling love through his own son, dying in the place of sinners like you and me. They were in danger of leaving that behind. The cross that they looked to when they first believed through Paul's preaching and Acts Chapter 18, where he spent three years with them after that, discipling them in this beautiful new reality of the gospel. They were in danger of leaving that behind. Many of you have heard the expression, dance with the one that brung you. It means that someone brought you somewhere that you couldn't get to by yourself. And that once they bring you there, once you get there, instead of abandoning them and, and looking around for something shinier, you stick with them. You don't all of a sudden act like you've forgotten what got you there, like you don't need them anymore. I'm going to go out on a limb here in reference one of the classics of the 80s, Pretty in Pink. If you don't know the story, there's a, a poor girl. Name was Andy, played by Molly Ringwald. Falls in love with the rich guy, Blaine, played by Andrew McCarthy. She gets rejected by Blaine because he's afraid of what his friends think. So she has to go to the prom with Ducky. And Ducky is strange. (laughs) But at the dance, she sees Blaine. And Blaine has faced up to Steph, his friends. He's faced up to Steph, played by the ever punchable James Spader. If you ever want to punch somebody, watch this movie and find Steph. All you peaceful people will no longer be peaceful. But Steph was this cruel, entitled rich kid who thinks Andy is white trash and shouldn't be hanging out with them, really because he likes her and she doesn't like him. And if he were to accept her, then that would mean that he's less than white trash. It's very deep. But Ducky sees what's happening between Andy and and Blaine, and he's like, go ahead. Go ahead and go with Blaine. I'll be okay. I just want you to be happy. That's the very end. I've just totally spoiled it for most of you. So she comes with Ducky, and she leaves with Blaine. She did not dance with the one that brung her. And in that story, it makes sense because, again, Ducky is weird, and Blaine is Andrew McCarthy, and in the 80s, that meant something. But Jesus isn't ducky. If I can say that in, a, in somewhat of a serious way, Jesus isn't ducky. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could dance with someone else. But the Corinthians were doing just that. They went with Jesus to the dance. The cross was powerful enough to get them in. They believed in the cross. But when they got there, they took their eyes off of him, and they looked to another power. They looked to another power. They were good Romans. They they wanted to be sophisticated. They wanted to be seen as successful. They wanted wanted power that looks good, power that's tangible, the kind that that people flock to, the kind that the world applauds and says, yes, yes. This is power. I think we can understand that, and what that looked like in particular is that they're dividing over which teacher was the most gifted, right? As we don't, any, there's no way we could understand that struggle, right? Right. The 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 unhealthy evangelical relationship, or the relationship between evangelicals and their preachers, right. But they loved a good speaker. That's what Romans were all about. They were about oratory. Because a good speaker was a sign of of success and power. So the more people they had with them, the closer they were to the truth. It wasn't only that you can speak better than me, but it was like you have some sort of insight into what is ultimately true. And so like good Romans, they had taken this and imported it into the church this kind of mindset, and that's what Paul's dealing with right before this, setting up the entire book. I hear from Chloe's people that there are divisions among you. Some say, I'm of Apollos. Apollos could preach, man. We see that in Acts. The brother could shuck the corn. And so he was a great speaker, a great preacher. But others would say, I'm of Cephas, who presumably is Peter. And Paul says, I'm not playing that ridiculous game. Lest I empty the cross of its power. So their understanding was the Roman vision of the good life, not God's vision of the good life. It was something that you attain to through your gifts. And so you see that running throughout the entire book, right? I mean, the the vaunted spiritual gifts passage. From chapter 12 to chapter 14, is these people who had taken great pride in the gift. Now, they were a very gifted church, and they had taken great pride in these gifts. Paul's like, dude, you're missing it. And so he's laying the foundation here of, of really confronting the real core issues. He doesn't jump in and confront uh, incest, he doesn't jump in and confront sexual immorality. Those kinds of sins have a way of saying, okay, if you're in that, that's real obvious. It's kind of saying, you know what? I know I need to get out of here. But it's these kinds of things that are very subtle. They're part of your water that you drink. They're part of your breakfast. And you can't even see when you're, when you're partaking of them. I mean, preaching and speaking, it's a good thing, isn't it? And so what they had done is they'd taken these good gifts, these, and they had elevated them to God's status. And in so doing, they left behind the power of, of the cross it was not the power of the cross that defined them it was not the power of a god who fixes the world and its problems through the death of a galilean peasant that was offensive and silly to the romans so you can imagine being really excited about meeting Jesus, and then all of a sudden going in to this, these halls where these speakers are speaking and everybody's really loving these guys and these orators, and then you're talking about this Jewish dude who died. So that, so the, and that's how the whole world's going to be fixed. You can see their reaction to that and how it might be really tempting to say, hmm, yeah, not not... Maybe it's not that big of a deal, or I'm just going to shut up about it. See, people are fine unless if, if you have your little private kind of relationship with God, that's great. You know, that's, that's beautiful. That's you and Him. But once you start talking publicly about the power of the cross, that's when you're going to get some pushback. That's when people are going to look at you and say, really? That's stupid. So this is where they were. I feel like they were were just easily in this dark culture that they got saved out of, and they're trying to figure out how to be faithful Christians in the middle of all of this. And in reality, the message about Jesus, it just wasn't good enough for the Romans. It wasn't sophisticated enough. It's too simple. Like, Like really God flexing his power through someone dying. What kind of power is that? So it was foolish to them. It was not just wrong. It was unimaginably wrong. It was was hilariously wrong. It was something you scoff at. The very notion is is insulting. It's, It's beneath you for a good Roman citizen to even think about the cross. And so when Paul says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. When he writes that, I think it's really easy for us to think, oh, he's just talking about people who are not Christians there, and then to move along. Because it's true, in one way, it is talking about people who are not Christians. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's the very definition of someone who's not a Christian, someone who's perishing the world who is a part of the kingdom of this world that is that will be brought under ultimate judgment when Jesus comes and removes all sin so that's true but there's another side of this in the context where Paul is looking at the Corinthians in effect he's asking them is the message of the cross good enough for you are you ashamed of the gospel Because honestly, Paul says, I think you sound like a bunch of people who are perishing. You sound like a bunch of people who have their hope firmly anchored in this world and what this world can give you. So by saying this in verse 18, he's not simply making a thesis about believers and non-believers. He's making a thesis about to say, listen, believers can live this way or they can live this way and the reason they're so attracted to the the applause of the world to the power and the comfort it can give you is because they've lost sight of the greater power of the cross the cross has become small and when the cross becomes small other things become big so this is a warning don't move on don't move on from this. This is your life, this is your, your lifeblood. There's two options here. There's life lived like the Corinthians, who were Christians. Listen, they were Christians. The church of God who is at Corinth. I believe that's verse 3. But in losing sight of the cross, they put themselves outside of God's design for his church. That God intended for his people whom he saved. To be a people of power. A people of transformation. That heaven in a very real way did meet earth. Does meet earth. Initially when Jesus came, it was heaven coming down. And when someone becomes a Christian, they are filled with the Holy Spirit heaven meets earth. There is supposed to be something different about the church at Corinth. There's supposed to be something different about us and that they simply looked and thought like a world that is perishing, living a life where the cross is emptied of its power. And again, that is normative. We We would expect that for someone who is not a Christian. But friends, it is very possible for believers. That's option one. Option two is the life lived with power, the second part of the verse. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. Paul wants better things for the Corinthians because Paul is a preacher of the cross and he sees and understands that the only thing, the only hope that they have, that the world has is not more great speakers is not us trying to be cool not us trying to, to be so relevant that we forget the reality of the truth, the, the, the engine of, of, of who we are that is the message of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross he wants better things for them He wants the power of God. Now, let's talk about the power of God. That's a a Greek word, dunamis, power. That's where we get dynamite, dynamic. We're talking about all of God's ability, right? When you think of God, you think of of ability to, to do something. That's what we're meaning when we say power. His ability to accomplish what he sets forth to do to produce an effect, which being God means the only limitation that he has is what he puts on himself, God going to do what God want to do, right? You can't stop him. And God's power is typically associated with, biblically speaking, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. As we look back through scripture, we see him hovering over the face of the waters at creation in Genesis 1, verse 2. We see him in the New Testament bringing new life, creating new life in someone who believes in Jesus. So just those two right there, God forges the universe out of nothing. And he creates new spiritual life from dead, rebellious hearts by his Spirit. Jesus did miracles in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see in the power of the Holy Spirit. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to send gifts of the Holy Spirit to us. And he promised to be with us until the very end of the age through The Holy Spirit. I know at my church, the power of God, like yours, is something we savor. We love the power of God. But for us, at C3, God's power is something that we can easily talk about in a very limited way. We can talk about it in past and future tenses. That's how we tend to think about God's power. Jesus saved me from my sins in the past. God did this great, powerful work by sending his son for me. His spirit moved powerfully in convicting me of my sin. His His death on the cross perfectly paid for my sin, made me a new creature, again, Back to that, a new creature, not creature. <laughs> and how precious that truth is, friends, for th- please do not ever get over this. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so that those who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Hear me, God gave what is most precious to him to save us. Those songs that talk about God Not wanting heaven without us, or God being madly in love with us, or the reckless love of God, they always make me very nervous. They do. But friends, they're trying to get at something deep about the love of God that we can't comprehend. In fact, Ephesians chapter three tells us we need the Holy Spirit to help us comprehend the depths of the love of God. It's something that you don't get naturally on your own. You simply do not understand. It is too marvelous, it is too wonderful, which is maybe why we shouldn't try to put so many words to it. We should let the Holy Spirit actually shed that abroad in our hearts, So we rightly rejoice in the salvation accomplished for us in the past. Amen? And also, rightly, do we think about our promised future, where Jesus will save us not simply from the penalty of sin in the past, but from the presence of sin in the future. Our minds, guys, think about this. Our minds and our bodies will be fully redeemed one day. Amen. There will be a time when I don't want to sin. Can you can you imagine having a heart that's not fickle? A heart that doesn't shift with your blood pressure or with how hungry you are? How fickle-hearted we are, and there will be a time when now I can not sin, right? Because of the Holy Spirit, I can choose not to sin. I've given, been given a new heart. But there will be a time where it will be impossible for me to sin. There will be, no, be no wickedness for sin to kind of latch onto. How great is that? And on top of that, my body will be fixed. I'll, I will get to spend time with my nine-year-old son. Both of us now are type 1 diabetics. Our genetics are trash, right? But we will not have that. A friend of mine was speaking on this, and his son has some sort of regressive developmental disability where he's not able to talk. It's like, I'll be able to talk with my daughter one day. Like, that's coming. It is so critical that we have God's future grace before our eyes at all times. He is coming to make all things new. And so Gandalf says, look to my coming. At dawn on the fifth day, look to the east. I'm coming. And that is such a big, important part of the Christian life. Both of these things, God has worked mightily in the past and God will work mightily in the future. But in between those two, we can act like he is not here, like he does nothing. Now, to be sure, I am not advocating a prosperity gospel. Jeff would not let me preach if I did. To be sure, the pilgrimage of the Christian life to the heavenly city is fraught with danger, fraught with suffering, absolutely. But I get a sense from so many, and in my own life, and so many people that I pastor, that it's God did this work back then, and yes, he's coming back in the future, but until then, you're kind of on your own. Now, we know we wouldn't say that, but in our experience, I believe that to be true. But I want you to notice what it says here in this text. It doesn't say to us who have been saved. It doesn't say to us who will be saved. It says to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. Those who are very much in the middle Of their journey towards the heavenly city. As we are being saved. Not our past rebellious self or our future perfect self. But my right now self. The word of the cross is the power of God to me now. The word of the cross is the power of God to you now. For example... There is still now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Still. Yes, even with all of the running away and all of the sinning that you've done. Do you remember those socks from back uh, in the 80s? Well, most of the dudes wore these. They were socks that you'd pull them up. They had like stripes around the calf And then, after about a year of wearing them, they would start to sag because the elasticity would wear out. Jesus' elasticity never wears out, the cross never sags. The cross never loses its power. Entropy does not apply to the dunamis, to the power of God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when he said, I do, at the cross, that was forever. He is the ultimate faithful husband. But in addition to that, God doesn't simply... Save us from afar. He doesn't dictate our salvation in the councils of heaven. Let them be saved. Let Jesus come down and die on the cross for their sins, and their sins are nailed to the cross, and then boom, going back up. But in saving us, He draws near in loving affection. God calls us things like the beloved. God calls you beloved. Zephaniah 3, God sings over his people. Is there room in your theology of God for the king, ruler of the universe, to sing over you? God doesn't administer forgiveness from afar. You can't separate the power of God in the cross from the, pre- from the promise of God to be present among his people. As those who are being saved, friends, God is not locked in the past. Nor is he waiting off stage for the future to get here. But he is here Now among us, to bless, to bring joy, to empower us with spiritual gifts for the upbuilding of the church, to comfort us in the midst of our loneliness, to heal us from shame. There's so much brokenness in this world. There's so much brokenness in the midst of so many of our stories that a lot of times our category for God betrays us here, that in the very areas and the moments where we need him the most, our view of God will not allow him to be here. But he is with you in your silence. He is with you in your sickness. He is with you in your sin, in your struggles, in your shame, all of these. Let us never forget that God is the willing one here. Let us never forget that long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. He is here now in spirit with us. And that's actually what we have to offer those who are perishing we are the temple of God. Come and see what he's like. Not only, certainly, as we describe him to you, but come and taste and see that the Lord is good. So, I don't preach 50-minute sermons I was given 50 minutes, and I don't have a 50-minute sermon. but I would like to end by talking about how to lay hold of the power of God. Um, how to dance with the one that brung us. Three Three suggestions. First and foremost: listen to the word of God. Whose word? This, it always comes down to this. Whose word are you going to believe? It, nothing has changed since Genesis chapter 3 when all of this mess started, where Satan started saying for the first time, did God really say... Are we going to believe the word of Satan or are we going to believe the word of the cross? He's still playing that same tune. It's the only one he has. It's like the Eagles. It's it's Hotel California played a billion different ways that you can check out anytime you like, but you literally can never leave because that's all they play over and over and over again. This is the same tune that he still plays. And here's how it goes Did God really say, John O, that you are forgiven? Even though you just committed that sin yet again? Did God really say, nah, I knew you weren't really serious about him. I knew you were a flake. I told you not to try and obey. You'll never change. You're just going to be stuck in that sin for the rest of your life. Satan wants to to call into question all the promises of the power of the cross to us. And we have to learn to hear the word of God, brothers and sisters, that voice that says, I am the faithful one. That I do not quit. I am not fickle. Second, we have to pray or learn to pray to the God who is here now. Not to the God who saved us a long time ago, but to the God who is very much with us and interested in hearing our voice. God who is alive and moving now. I think there's maybe a little bit of shame or something that we carry with us that sort of disqualifies us from having that sort of interaction with God, to think that he is here and that he cares, and that he wants to hear from his people. That he is here to empower us, to be among us, to bring comfort to us. We pray to a God who is not locked up in the sky, but who is here with us. I remember when I was uh, in seventh grade, my parents were about to get divorced, and um, they, we grew up down the street from Tom and Teresa Nelson. And we heard that there was this thing going on at the church called the Song of Solomon. It was a sermon series that took that church from about this size to about 80,000 in a month. Because somebody was talking about sex and real things. And my parents, in a last-ditch effort to fix their marriage... Went and tried to get a little church in. It didn't work. But what was what struck me was the content. I'd never heard that talked about. But was the fact that there were people who were living as if God existed. All of a sudden, there's dudes walking around with their Bibles. And not just priests. But like dudes wearing jorts. Had their Bibles and pencils and raising their hands and, well, I mean, about this high, raising their hands about this high, not too high, right? It's Bible Church. I can get away with it. Tom's a friend. And, and I was struck. It's like, wait a second. God's real. And I know, friends, that all of us have had that time in our lives, and it's in the past where God was very, very real to us, but then when you are just hammering it out with sickness on this heavenly journey, with sickness and with children and heart attacks and all of these things that, that are just going on and discouragement and fickle hearts, it's easy to let your heavenly gaze just drop and just think about the things of this earth and to say, you know what, God's yeah, he'll be back. But what I'm not going to do is really walk in all the power that he has for me, all the joy that he has for me. I'm just going to abstain from that because man, I'm a little afraid that I'll be disappointed. And so, brothers and sisters, when I say pray to the God who is here now, I'm not talking about trying to stir up some kind of emotional excitement of the biblical truth that the triune God has come to make a home in you and in me. And then finally, the, the, the last thing, I mean there's a bunch of other things that you could do, but I think for us, um, the last way to lay hold of the power of God to dance with the one that brung us, um, is to practice the word of the cross on one another. To practice the forgiveness that's been given to us on one another. Um, Learning to see each other through the blood of Christ. Married couples learning to practice radical forgiveness. Not to hold my spouse's sin against me, but to keep short accounts with my wife. And in reality, her keeps short accounts with me. That poor woman, (laughs) that poor, poor woman. And how endowed with the grace of God she's been. To simply be merciful and gentle towards me. But it's the practicing of the cross of Christ that that becomes a reality. You begin to understand and see people through the lens. And then when you start to be forgiven in the same way, it starts to put some skin on this theoretical reality of the gospel, of the power of the cross, that it's meant to take up residence here in the way we treat one another. And as we do that, as we lean into forgiving one another, we truly are laying hold of the power of God. Forgiveness is meant to be used the cross is meant to be put to work. It's meant to lift heavy weight. It's meant to exist in the midst of community. This is a church that is about loving one another, about members coming together and taking responsibility for the life of the church. What a privilege it is that we have to do. But listen, listen. Brothers and sisters, if the cross is not at the center of that, how long is it going to take until you run into somebody that's just a little bit annoying? If we don't have the cross, then in other words, everybody better be exactly like I need them to be. Now, some of us are gregarious people, and we can have a broad range of people that we can tolerate. But for me, that's about two people. I need the power of the cross. If the church is going to be the church, I need the power of the cross. The Corinthians needed the power of the cross not to divide themselves into factions, but to love one another as Christ loved them, which assumes a healthy dose of forgiveness. This is Crazy, upside down stuff. The world wants nothing to do with that. In the world, you mess you mess me over, I'm done. But the church displays the beauty of a people who humbly go before one another and say, "I'm sorry. Would you forgive me?" And in doing so, we truly, friends, truly. Display the life of God on earth. People who see that, they get an understanding, a pattern of what God is like. And they don't know what to call it. It's weird, but it's compelling. And I think as we go further into the future, as Christianity kind of moves its way to the margins of our culture, of our society, It's going to be the quality of our life together that is going to be the thing that draws people to Christ. It's not going to be our entertainment. It's not going to be our giant mega churches, nothing against those. But it's going to be God's people practicing the power of the cross towards one another. So, and ing because that baby's ready to get out of here. Um learning to dance is awkward and it takes time. Um, Most of us are like junior hires who sit on the side of each wall and then there's that one crazy kid who comes out in the middle who's not afraid to dance at all. And God is asking us to take the risk to get into the middle and to learn to dance to learn to take hold of his power that he has so much more to not leave the cross the power of the cross behind that he has so much more in store so much power so much joy and so the question i want to leave you with is this have i have i downplayed really what god could possibly want for me, right now, have I said no? He doesn't do that anymore, or uh, no? Well, that's what weird kind of charismatics people do—they're trying to manipulate God. I'm not talking about that. Have you limited and said no, God? You're—you're you're really in some way you're not here. You don't want to hear me. How can you open your heart up and say, God, I want you. I'm asking you to be here with me. I think when we do that, friends. God will respond. So would you pray with me? Let's make that so. Let's ask the Spirit to help us do that. And as we do that, we become the church that God designed us to be.